good to be with you this morning. Uh, we're going to begin uh, a new six-week class on uh, Calvin and his institutes. Uh, we're not going to cover all of his institutes, only a small portion of it, but I hope that this will serve as an introduction, and I hope that the portion that we cover uh, will uh, whet your appetites uh, to continue reading Calvin, uh, either maybe for the first time, if you have not read him before, or rereading him. Uh, he's uh, one of the giants of the faith and of the Reformed uh, tradition, um, and so we will be blessed by the study of him. For this class, though, um, we'll just be uh, going through a portion of the Institutes. Uh, we'll, we'll get into all that shortly. To begin, though, as we always do, I'd like to uh, pray for us. But um, for, for this class, uh, I thought we would let Calvin lead us in prayer. So I'm going to um, use a prayer of Calvin's uh, himself, uh, and we can um, use him to uh, help us to pray as we go through this class. But uh, would you uh, bow your heads with me, and let's pray. O Lord, you, are, you who are the fountain of all wisdom and learning, illumine our understanding, which of itself is blind, so that it may grasp the teaching that would be given to us. Please strengthen our memory to be able to remember well, dispose our hearts to receive what is taught willingly and with due eagerness, so that the opportunity you present to us may not be lost because of our ingratitude. To do this, please pour out your Holy Spirit on us, the spirit of all intelligence, truth, judgment, prudence, and teaching. Grant that we may direct our study to the true purpose, which is to know you in our Lord Jesus Christ, to have full confidence of salvation and life in your grace alone, and to serve you rightly and purely according to your pleasure. Hear us, merciful, merciful Father, by our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I titled this uh, series... Uh, this, this class, uh, The Christian Life, an introduction to Calvin's Institutes. Be, it would be near impossible to cover everything that Calvin covers in his Institutes uh, in, in 60 weeks if we had them, let alone uh, just the six weeks that we have. So my goal for this class is to provide an introduction of sorts, one that will encourage us to continue reading Calvin, either for the first time, like I said, or maybe rereading him again. The title, The Christian Life, is taken from Calvin himself, this is actually the title of a section of his, of his Institutes, which is what we will be reading in the class together, and I'll explain this as we go along. Uh, there's five total chapters in this section on the Christian life, so the general outline of the class uh, will follow that uh, pattern. So today's class, we are going to do a general uh, introduction and an overview of the Institutes uh, and the Christian life, and then in the subsequent five weeks. We will cover one of those five chapters each week. So for uh, this morning then, uh, here's what will be uh, what I hope to cover uh, as we go, uh, go along. So first I'd like to provide just a brief history of John Calvin. Uh, emphasis is on brief. Um, I know that many of us will be familiar with Calvin, but not necessarily all of us. And so I want to give us a fu- uh, foundational understanding of the man because that's so important as we read his works to know what he's gone through, uh, to, to understand that he truly uh, believed what he taught and what he wrote and what he preached. And that will help us to understand more of his, his writing. And so with that in mind, then we'll, we'll turn to the Institutes themselves. Uh, this is a class on the Institutes, so we'll discuss uh, Calvin, how he wrote the Institutes, how they came to be, uh, the history of that publication, uh, of this this immense work. Uh, next, after that, then, we'll turn specifically to this chapter of the Institutes, which in Latin was De, De Vita Hominis Christiani, that is, on the life of the Christian man. Uh, this will be our main focus of the class. It's Calvin's discussion on the Christian life, on progressive sanctification, on how the Christian ought to live. And it, it's a great introduction to Calvin, and, and we'll, we'll explain all this as we go along. Finally, then, I'd like to end with some practical application. Uh, why, why do we want to study this part of the Institutes? Why is this an important part to, to read and to focus on? Why would we choose this portion of the Institutes as opposed to any other section? So that's how we'll end the class. So that's where we're going. Let's jump in. Let's begin. So John Calvin was born in Noyon, France. 
It was a Catholic uh, cathedral town northeast of Paris. John was the second of seven sons born to Gerard and his wife, Jeanne. Uh, Gerard himself, uh, he was uh, part of the Catholic Church. He served as the business administrator of the cathedral there in Noyon. And uh, he was uh, a lawyer as well. And he was able to secure uh, income for his uh, sons in order to fund their education. And so at the age of 14, uh, Gerard sent his son John to Paris to receive an education, first in Latin and theology. Uh, During this time, however, there's some disagreements that arose between Gerard and between the Catholic Church. Uh, resulting in his dismissal, dismissal from the Roman Church. And, and we're not sure exactly all that caused that split, but we do know that in November of 1528, Gerard was excommunicated for failing to provide audited records for some of his financial dealings with the church. And so because of this, Gerard had John, uh, John Calvin, change his career path to pursue law instead. And so in 1528, uh, John Calvin uh, receives his law degree. And while he's doing this, he's a dutiful son. He doesn't necessarily want to go to law school, but he follows his father's wishes, earns his law degree, while he still studies Greek on the side. And he still is, um, as you know, Martin Luther in 1517 sparked the Reformation. Uh, Calvin is a student at this time uh, in, the, in the wake of that, and he's keeping his ear to the ground and, and hearing and reading these, these first-generation reformers like Martin Luther, like Ulrich Zwingli. And so during this time, while he's in law school, John would make friends with some of the Protestants and, Ref- uh, and the sympathizers of the Reformation, though he remained a dutiful son and continued his law degree. Well, after his father's death in 1531, uh, John returned to Paris to study ancient languages, to, he, he, to pursue his, his original interests. He finished his first major work during that time, a commentary on Seneca's treatise on clemency. That's a treatise concerning the ethics of kindness and of mercy. And he did that when he was 23 years old in 1532. And it was here that he could combine his Renaissance learning with his legal training. This commentary was considered a brilliant work. Uh, He was outperforming some of the other leading scholars at the time, still at a very young age. And it was at this time that Calvin, he was still a member of the Catholic Church in Paris, and he was receiving income through church beneficiaries. But that changed very quickly uh, in, uh, when he and uh, one of his friends, uh, Nicholas uh, Kopp, uh, they published, uh, he published a controversial letter with reformational themes, and that forced Calvin to flee Paris. Uh, there was also, at that time, some Reformation sentiment sweeping through France, um, in uh, what's known as uh, the Affair of the Placards or the uh, Affair of the Posters. Uh, this was in 1534. This was a day when there was posters that appeared all over France calling for a reformation of the church, including a poster that somehow found its way uh, on the, the, the wall right outside the King of France, uh, King Francis I, right outside his bedroom. Uh, the poster appeared calling for the reformation. And uh, the King of France was not pleased with that. And, uh, and uh, so uh, Calvin and his friends and the other uh, people who were calling for, uh, for church reform, they had to flee uh, from, from France. It was right around this time then, and we don't know exactly when, um, that John Calvin experienced this conversion. We're not sure the exact date of the conversion. Uh, historians date it usually between 1529 and 1534, somewhere within that uh, five-year period, but certainly before he uh, fled, Fran- uh, f- uh, fled from France, which was in 1534. And we don't know much about his experience of conversion except what he writes in his preface and uh, his commentary on the Psalms, which he wrote later in life in 1557. But in the, his commentary and in the preface of this commentary on the Psalms, he says that he experienced a sudden conversion, being convicted of the authority of the Scriptures and sensing a personal call to obedience. That Latin word he uses for sudden, it could also mean unpremeditated, as in uh, he did not expect this to happen, and yet he was overcome with a sense of the authority of Scripture in his life, and, uh, and his life had changed at that point forever. 
So he fled from France in uh, May of 1534. However, he returned briefly uh, to Noyon, his childhood home, to officially separate from the church, which is significant because it also severed his ties to his income that he was receiving from those beneficiaries. And it was then, later in 1534, uh, French King Francis I, who was upset with the reform um, that was being called upon uh, by the the Protestants in France, he, he turned his brutal attention to these French Protestants, he, uh, jailing them, at times even executing them. Uh, estimates have tens of thousands of Protestants martyred during this time, sometimes even entire villages. Uh, Calvin fled France, and he found refuge in the Protestant territory of uh, Basel, Switzerland. And it was during this time of flight and persecution that Calvin outlined and published the first edition of his Institutes of the Christian religion. He was around 27 years old. And this first edition was written for the express purpose of providing an introduction of the Christian religion for those, especially in Calvin's home, ter- home country of France, who had embraced the Protestant faith and were being persecuted because of it. Calvin would address this first edition to King Francis I himself, appealing to him to read this work and to cease hostilities with the Protestants there. He was making the, the appeal, we were not heretics, we are not uh, anathema as the, the Church of Rome would, uh, has called us. And in fact, it is, it is they, it is the Church of Rome who has departed from the biblical faith and orthodoxy. Well, it was after this time, after the publication of the first, the, uh, the first edition of the Institutes, uh, Calvin wanted to travel to Strasbourg, as many of you know, and he wanted to resign himself to a quiet life of of uh, academics and of study. Uh, He needed to take an indirect route because of hostility, so he went south first uh, from Basel, hoping to go to Strasbourg, but he went south first, hoping to spend just one night in Geneva on his trip. And perhaps many of you know how that story goes from there, Uh, but uh, he met uh, someone who would become one of his uh, closest friends and a fellow minister, William Farrell. Uh, That's the, the theologian, not the actor, uh, but the uh, the reformer. Pharaoh was already in Geneva, and he had already known about Calvin because his institutes had already been published and had been circulated. And so Pharaoh pleaded with Calvin to stay in Geneva to help him build the church, but when it became obvious that Calvin was not going to listen to any human reason, he was dead set on going to Strasbourg. Pharaoh resorted to calling a curse upon Calvin if he would leave. And Calvin recollects this moment also in his commentary on the Psalms, recollecting on his life, saying that he, that Pharaoh, uh, quoting Calvin now, he proceeded to utter the imprecation, yeah, the imprecation that God would curse my retirement and the tranquility of my studies, which I sought, if I should re- withdraw and refuse to help when the, necessary, when the necessity was so urgent. So Pharaoh brought a curse down upon God, upon Calvin, for him to stay, and Calvin listened to his friend. He stayed in Geneva, and that was his first stint as a pastor, Uh, but it was short-lived. 1538, about two years there total, Calvin and Pharaoh were both banished from the city of Geneva by the city council uh, due to disagreements with church authority. And with Calvin, we see the first concept or or ideas of, of this separation of church authority and civil authority. Calvin and, and Farrell, they presented the city council with a draft of what they would consider, what we would consider their book of church order for the church. And part of that included the authority of the church, not of the city council, to exercise church discipline, including excommunication. The city council wanted final authority on matters of discipline, especially that right of excommunication, because leaving the church meant leaving the city. And so these disagreements came to a head in 1538, and, and Calvin and Farrell, they were, they were forced to leave. Well, Calvin, it's hard to say for sure how he felt, but he was certainly uh, pleased at least a little bit, because he never wanted to stay in Geneva in the first place. He wanted to go to Strasbourg, and so he did that. He, he followed his original plan, went to Strasbourg, and he was there for about three years, uh, working with the fellow reformer Martin Bucer, who was the leading minister in the city at that time. Uh, Calvin became the pastor of the French refugees that were there in the predominantly uh, German-speaking Strasbourg. And it was also there that he would study, or he would um, publish, his second edition of the Institutes. And this is important for us because it's in this edition 
published in 1539, that includes now a chapter on the Christian life. That's the chapter that we'll be studying in more detail throughout this class. Um, but a lot of uh, prominent things happened in Calvin's life in, while he was in Strasbourg. Uh, that's where he met uh, and married his wife, Idolette, in 1540. But they would only be married less than nine years before her death uh, due to um, his poor health. And possibly that health, poor health was due to some complications with uh, childbirth. I believe Idolette uh, was a widow and had two children already. Uh, but uh, she gave birth to Calvin's only child, who was a son, uh, but who died only a few days after uh, his birth. And uh, we'll discuss more of Calvin's life as we go through the class and how that, has imp- how that impacted his his, uh, his outlook on life, and especially his writings. But things were going well for Calvin when he was in Strasbourg. He was recently married. He had a pastorate that he really liked. Uh, he was able to live a life of tranquility and peace and study. He was working on his second edition of the Institutes, like we already mentioned, which is a greatly expanded uh, from his uh, first uh, edition, but we'll, we'll look at that a bit uh, more as we go along. And it's also at this time that he completed his first commentary on a book of the Bible, which was on the book of Romans. Uh, so talk about a bold choice to, uh, uh, to choose a book of the Bible to do your first commentary on. He, he tackled uh, the book, uh, Romans. But it was during this time, in September of 1540, that the city council would send word to Calvin, uh, the city council of Geneva, inviting him to come back, saying, Calvin, we were wrong, we we need you to come back. And we voted, and and you're coming back. And Calvin promptly said, no thanks. (laughs) I'm all good. So with his his answer, a no to their invitation, the city council didn't... uh, they, didn't, uh, they wouldn't take no for an answer, and they turned to Calvin's friend, uh, Farrell, uh, to ask to uh, see if he would help them get Calvin to come back uh, and get Calvin to reconsider. What's really remarkable about that is that they didn't ask Farrell to come back. <laughs> we don't need you to come back, but we would like you to help us to get Calvin to come back because we would really like Calvin uh, to come back. And to, to Pharaoh's credit, he was not too proud to help, but he understood, and he still had a deep love for the church that he had helped to start there in Geneva, and so he urged and he pleaded uh, Calvin to return. Uh, he knew that Calvin was the man for the job, and so Calvin uh, reluctantly again listened to the words of his friend. This time, he, he did take his time. He was invited to come back in the fall of 1540. It took about a full year for him to get his affairs in order, and he did return to Geneva in August of 1541. And Calvin would spend the rest of his life there, and he accomplished uh, so much. He would average about one commentary on a book of the Bible per year while he was there. He would obviously work on growing the church. He would preach uh, twice every Sunday, and then he would uh, preach uh, six, um, uh, yeah, every weekday, every other week. They would rotate with his company of pastors there. Uh, So he preached regularly, He, of course, was writing his commentaries and, of course, working on his institutes as well throughout that time. Final edition of the institutes being published in 1559. He would finish that there in Geneva. Uh, He would even begin the the Geneva Academy to train up more pastors and and even more than that to to, um, help the the people receive an education as well. And then that would be where uh, he would die in um, 1559, fifth final edition of the Institutes, began the Geneva Academy, and then five years later, his death on May 27th of 1564. Well, it's almost impossible to uh, overstate the legacy and the importance of John Calvin. Uh, I I recommend a really excellent speech that uh, Dr. Stephen Lawson, one of the Ligonier Teaching Fellows, you can find it online. Uh, He gave a speech on the legacy of John Calvin, and I really liked uh, his his, uh, illustration uh, at the beginning, he, he wanted to, uh, in his speech, he wanted to help everyone wrap their arms around Calvin and his legacy. And he, he likened that to someone trying to wrap their arms around the Atlantic Ocean. It's, it's impossible. It's impossible to overstate, to understand not just his, his impact on the church and the Reformed tradition of which we are descendants and on his shoulders we, we stand, uh, but uh, his impact on society and education, Western civilization as a whole. 
But let's move on now uh, to uh, the f- main, getting closer now to the main focus of this class is, is on his institutes of the Christian religion. The first edition of the institutes, like we mentioned, in 15, uh, 1530, oh, 1534, 1534. He, uh, it was much smaller in its final form, uh, than its final form. Uh, the first edition consisted of only six chapters. Uh, the first chapter concerned the law and the gospel of sin and salvation. Uh, the second chapter was on faith, and specifically justification by faith alone. And then in the third, Calvin discussed prayer. In the fourth chapter, he discussed the two true sacraments of the church. And then in the fifth chapter, he discussed uh, how Rome had uh, corrupted those two true sacraments, as well as uh, Calvin um, rejecting the other five uh, rites that uh, Rome falsely claimed to be uh, sacraments. Uh, in the sixth and final chapter of this first edition of the Institutes, Calvin had a chapter on Christian freedom, which examines uh, examining how the Christian is free in matters of religion from all human inter- uh, invention and is bound only to the teaching of the Bible. Well, the Institutes was an immediate success when it was first published, uh, with many Protestant leaders recognizing Calvin's gifts and his skill. Calvin's uh, good friend, uh, we mentioned already, uh, Farrell in Geneva, uh, he had, in fact, written his own uh, systematic theology of sorts about a decade earlier. But when Calvin's came out, Farrell advised people to put aside his own book and to read Calvin instead. Calvin himself recognized his calling in, in life as well, and he dedicated himself to revise and to update and to expand the Institutes throughout his life. The Institutes went through five Latin editions in total, the final being completed in 1559, like we mentioned. And this final edition is about five times the length of the original, and ever since it's been used as an introduction to systematic theology, uh, beloved by pastors and scholars and students and pastors alike. In his book, I referenced this book earlier, or I guess I didn't reference it, but I read from it. This is a, a book which I highly recommend by David Calhoun, Knowing God and Ourselves, a book on reading Calvin's Institutes devotionally. And uh, he uh, has a lot of Calvin's prayers in it. I read one of those this morning. But in, in, in his book, uh, Calhoun, he articulates five very helpful uh, characteristics of Calvin's Institutes uh, that will be helpful for us to consider as well. And so when we look at the Institutes as a whole, uh, the first thing we see is that these, uh, this, this work that Calvin did, this work of systematic theology, is very biblical. There are close to 7,000 total references to the Bible in the Institutes, in the final edition. And Calvin's intent with the Institutes was always and only to be a companion to biblical study. And his desire was that the Institutes would serve as a companion for those studying the Bible and he would reference his biblical commentaries uh, constantly in his institutes, and vice versa. In his commentaries, uh, if there was a, a significant theological matter that came up in the biblical text, he would address it expositionally and then point his readers back to the institutes for a, a lengthier discussion on the topic, and, and vice versa. So he always uh, referred his readers back and forth between one another because his, his one foundation was the Word of God. And I'm, I'm reminded of uh, uh, when I was in, in college, in, in, in university, uh, there was a lecture by a, uh, an Arminian uh, theologian and, and scholar, and, and uh, he was making his case uh, for Arminianism as opposed to uh, Calvinism in terms of salvation and soteriology. Uh, and, and I remember uh, one, of, one of his points in refuting Calvinism uh, was that uh, he said that in if you, uh, the lecturer said, if you read Calvin's commentaries, Calvin's much softer, and he's, he's, uh, he uh, is not as harsh about predestination and some of these other points as he is in his institutes. Uh, the point being is this lecturer is arguing that Calvin is inconsistent even with himself. Uh, and if you were to read the Calvin, who's a biblical scholar, uh, he would say things differently, have a different understanding, and even a more Arminian understanding if that was possible than he is in his very rigid and, and cold and harsh institutes. Well, that just uh, could not be farther uh, from the truth. Calvin would constantly refer 
from one to another. It, Calvin was a magnificent theologian and biblical scholar, and he uh, systematized so well the biblical content and organized it so well in this, this uh, handbook on Christian theology, as, uh, which is the Institutes. And we'll, we'll talk more about him being pastoral as opposed to being this cold ivory tower theologian. But, but he, he was a great systematician of the biblical content. And that's the second characteristic that we see here. Uh, the institutes are extremely uh, systematic, perhaps due in large part to the previous legal studies that he had. Again, God is foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. And he used this uh, legal education to train Calvin in a way that developed him into this masterful systematician. And this was recognized immediately as he began his career, as we, we've mentioned above. He, and he's been recognized by exegetes and theologians in every uh, generation since. Uh, for example, Abraham Kuyper, he saw Calvin's theology as superior to Augustine's because of its, quote, thoroughgoing logical consistency. That's what he sees in Calvin. And just as all biblical exegetes, they must contend with Calvin's commentaries, even still today, so too all theologians. They have to dialogue with Calvin and with his institutes. And one of the beautiful things about Calvin's systematic work with the biblical data is that he's quite willingly to allow seemingly com- competing biblical truths to stand side by side without forcing them into an artificial harmony. So, for example, that the perennial problem of evil, that question of how can God be all good and yet how can he permit or allow evil and sin to exist? God's love and God's wrath, how are those reconciled in the same uh, God, and how are they juxtaposed to one another? Calvin handles these topics with care. He never goes beyond what Scripture says, but he also never shies away from going where Scripture is leading him. And we'll see a lot of this uh, in in just the short um, book that we'll read uh, on sanctification, the tensions that are there. He, he always is willing to embrace those tensions that exist. A third characteristic of the Institutes is that at times we'll use, uh, utilize polemics, uh, specifically against the teachings of Rome that were so um, focused on, on uh, the Protestant movement, of decredit, uh, decrediting the, the Protestant movement. And what we want to note here is we're not, we're not rebuking Calvin for how he wrote, Though he did have a problem with anger that he freely admitted and was working on throughout his life. Uh, But really, Calvin was utilizing the writing styles of the time. And he was remarkably reserved in his writing, given the circumstances of his life and his, his flight and his exile and his, uh, the, the attacks on him. And so by a polemical, we mean to say that Calvin wrote, in a way, as to provide his readers with the ability to defend their faith. B.B. Warfield uh, says this about Calvin. He says, uh, Calvin's fundamental aim was constructive, not destructive. He wished to rebuild the church on its true foundations, not destroy its edifice. But like certain earlier rebuilders of the holy city, he, that is Calvin, needed to work with trowel in one hand and the sword in the other. So Calvin, who was uh, physically a very weak and sickly man uh, most of his life. Uh, he was a fierce warrior for the truth. He would not suffer error when it struck at the glory of God and the purity and peace of the church. And so along with his desire to provide his readers the ability to defend their faith, the fourth characteristic that we see in the Institutes is that they are deeply pastoral because Calvin himself was a faithful and concerned pastor. Calvin composed the Institutes not in an ivory tower as a scholar, but as a busy city pastor in a difficult time and place. Calvin was not a cold and aloof uh, theologian, as he is often un, un, uh, uh, incorrectly characterized. His concern for the well-being of the flock is clear as one reads through the Institutes, and especially when we will consider this small portion of the Institutes on the Christian life. Calvin purposefully wrote, not in the cold and scholastic way as was common of the medieval scholastic theologians, and, and we, so we even see that in his writing himself. He, he did not unnecessarily bog down his discussions using only the scholastic language of the university, but he frequent, frequently will use figurative language and illustrations and repetition and other rhetorical devices that may not have been the custom at that time. But he would do so in order uh, not to simply give people the head knowledge, but to uh, get that head knowledge down to become heart knowledge, to get his people to believe and to love God and to uh, worship him. And that leads us to the last uh, characteristic, again, that, that Calhoun points out. And his, his main thrust of this book is to read, these, uh, read his institutes devotionally. And so again, uh, Warfield 
uh, makes a similar point. He says, it is not the head, but the heart, which made Calvin a theologian. And it is not the head, but the heart, which he primarily addresses in his theology. His theology, if ever there was a theology of the heart, was distinctively a theology of the heart. And in him, the maxim that it is the heart that makes the theologian finds perhaps its most eminent illustration. Calvin was unyielding in his desire for God's people to grow in their piety. Calvin himself would define piety in this way, first from his, uh, in his, uh, the Geneva Catechism, which he wrote. He says that true piety consists in a sincere feeling which loves God as Father as much as it fears and reverences him as Lord, embraces his righteousness, and dreads offending him worse than death. And again, in his Institutes, Calvin will say, I call piety that reverence joined with love of God, which the knowledge of his benefits induces. For until men recognize that they owe everything to God, that they are nourished by his fatherly care, that he is the author of their every good, that they should seek nothing beyond him, they will never yield him willing service. So Calvin's theology, it can never be separated from the pastoral care and pastoral concern. He desired not only to see his affections for Christ grow, Uh, but that of his church and that of the church universal. He saw himself as a servant of Christ and a servant of his church. And and through his writings, Calvin desired, above all, to see all of God's people grow in their love and their devotion and their piety toward Jesus Christ. And so that last point, that that point of uh, Calvin's desire for true piety, that leads us to the main focus of this this six-week course. Perhaps nowhere else in his institutes, is his discussion on piety more fully developed than in this portion uh, that we'll study in this class, that, that section on the Christian life. Uh, so we'll, we'll get into that now. Let me just pause. I've been talking for a little while. Are there just any questions uh, at this point uh, that anybody has? I, I was trying to keep it as brief as possible. Um, at least his history, and just getting into the text itself. The question was if we were going to talk about more in depth about his his uh, uh, his specific issues with the the council, city council of Geneva, uh, with Servetus, with other um, events in his life. Um, I don't think we'll talk about those today, but maybe we could uh, mention them in in future uh, classes. Um, but I'd, I'd like to try to stick um, as as much in the institutes as we can. Any other questions? All right, well, let me, let me get into this, and then um, this will help frame our class going forward, and so, um, uh, and then we'll, we'll, we'll end with this here. Uh, but this is his Davida Hominis Christiani, his uh, On the Life of the Christian Man. As we've already been, as already has been said, we're not going to be reading through and discussing all the institutes, if only we had time to do that. Uh, but uh, we only have six weeks, and at this point, only five weeks and uh, 20 minutes or so. Uh, but um, uh, like we said, we want to uh, look at just this, this specific book. So let me, let me explain what this, this book is. Um, this section, this chapter, this book, however we want to call it, and it can get a little confusing, but we'll, we'll work through that. This, this first appeared, like we said, in his second edition of, of the Institutes. Uh, so in 1539, Calvin published an, uh, a revised and substantially expanded edition of the Institutes in Latin, and then he would translate that into his native French uh, a few years later. But it's in this, in this edition, which contained a new chapter at the end of the work that was called On the Life of a Christian Man. And interestingly, the contents of this chapter would remain virtually unchanged in each subsequent edition of the Institutes. The, the content would sometimes be rearranged, but, but the content itself stayed the same. And right away, the value of this chapter as its standalone treatise on sanctification and on the Christian life, independent of the rest of the Institutes, was seen by many. And so in 1540, uh, there's a Parisian uh, a Huguenot, uh, Pierre, who uh, he couldn't wait for Calvin to finish his own French translation, and so he translated this chapter into French himself. And it was never officially published, but it was copied and circulated so broadly, this French translation of this chapter on the Christian life, it was published, circulated so broadly uh, throughout France that the University of Paris had to put it on its index of prohibited books. Did not want people reading this chapter on the Christian life. Calvin himself would translate and publish his full second edition of the Institutes in French in 1541. So later in 1549... We see um, that uh, 
one of the first uh, translations uh, and publications of this chapter was made. So in 1549, there's an English translation of the chapter made by Thomas Broke, English reformer, published in, in London under the title of the life or conversion of a Christian man. Calvin himself in 1550 would authorize this chapter to be published in Latin independently of the Institutes, and this was the same year that his fourth edition of the Institutes was published. So along with the larger work then, the, the, the full uh, Institutes itself, the publisher would also publish just this one chapter on its own to circulate by itself, now titled A Distinguished Little Book on the Life of a Christian Man. And this new title likely serves as the basis for later Dutch and English designations of this work as the Golden Booklet, which maybe you are familiar with. So this chapter on the Christian life was always included in every edition of the Institutes, and for a while, from the 17th to mid-19th century or so, uh, it was not published individually. But then, in 1857, uh, like all good stories begin, there once was a Dutchman, This Dutchman, named Petrus Bartels, published a German translation of this chapter titled, A Booklet on the Life of a Christian Man. This was then translated into Dutch under the title, John Calvin's Golden Booklet Concerning Right Christian Walking. This Dutch edition of Calvin's book on the Christian life was reprinted several times in the 20th century, uh, 1906, 1938, 1950, uh, 1983, until finally... As all good stories go, there once was another Dutchman. And this Dutchman, in 1952, produced a new English translation from the Latin of the 1559 edition, which was called Golden Booklet of the True Christian Life. This was uh, Henry van Andel, a Dutch immigrant to America in the 1900s. He was a professor of Dutch language, literature, and culture at Calvin College uh, in the early and mid-1900s. And this was the primary English translation of Calvin's little book on the Christian life that was available uh, to the English-speaking uh, world. Uh, and if you've read this before, you most likely have read uh, this uh, translation and this edition of it, and it is still uh, in print. Uh, today, however, there's, there's uh, two other uh, solid modern translations of Calvin's Golden Booklet, as it were. Uh, the first is published by Banner Truth in 2009. It's called A Guide to Christian Living. It's uh, translated by Robert White, and what is uh, unique about this uh, one, and I don't have a copy of it with me, but Robert White translated Calvin's French edition of the 1541 Institutes. Now, you'll remember that's the second edition of the Institutes, the, the, the one that first contained the chapter on the Christian life. And uh, so I highly recommend this uh, copy of the Institutes, um, and it's the last chapter which is on the Christian life, and so Banner took that chapter out, which has been the case throughout the history of the Institutes, published it separately under this uh, title called A Guide to Christian Living. The other recent edition, uh, which I have with us here, is by uh, Burke Parsons and Aaron Denlinger, published by Ligonier Ministries, called A Little Book on the Christian Life. This is a new translation done in 2017, uh, the difference being that this is a fresh translation of the 1559 Institutes from Latin, uh, this one being from the French edition. So it's the same general content, but slightly different in how it reads. So this is a great edition. Uh, Burke Parsons, uh, who, who's the pastor of St. Andrew's, uh, R.C. Sproul's uh, uh, church uh, in Florida, and one of the Ligonier teaching fellows, an excellent pastor and, and uh, theologian. Um, but he had came across many different copies of the Golden Booklet, and he, he felt that they didn't quite capture Calvin in his own words. And, and he, he saw that uh, many had tried to turn it into a devotional, uh, whereas Dr. Parsons wanted to preserve the prose that Calvin originally wrote it in, in the Latin text. And so the translation uh, that uh, he uh, has, has completed here with uh, his colleague, uh, Dr. Denlinger, he, uh, wanted, they wanted to complete this new translation for the next uh, generation. And so, uh, so they finished this in 2017 uh, with the hopes that this uh, uh, little book on the Christian life would be uh, a good starting point uh, for readers to be introduced to Calvin. And that's, that's my goal as well, as we, we go through this uh, short little book here on the Christian life, that it would, it would, uh, it would um, inspire us to go on and, and to read all of Calvin. Uh, but let me just pause there and say uh, that I do have a box over here with some copies of 
League and Years edition. So I'd like to give those out to anyone at the end of class who's interested. So I have 15, uh, so we could start with maybe one per household. But if you do uh, come and take a copy, uh, you are promising to me that you're going to read it because I want you to read it because uh, it is an excellent, amazing uh, work. Uh, it is a powerful work. And, um, and so I, I do want you to have a copy of this, so please feel free to take one. If we run out, we'll, we'll get more. Uh, but it is, it is excellent. It's wonderful. And I want you to be reading this as we go along. Uh, let me just say a few words about the different um, editions of the Institutes. So this is Beveridge Translation, which was uh, finished, uh, completed. Uh, when, when would that have been? I'm blanking on it now when, when this one was it even in the 1800s? Uh, it, it's an older English translation, uh, but it's, it's, uh, this one is in the public domain. So if you don't have a copy of the Institutes, you can have a copy of the Institutes if you wish by going online and you can find it here. This is published by Hendrickson Publishers. It's an excellent resource. So maybe if, if you have one already, you might have this one. Um, it, it's, a, it's a great, um, it, it is a good translation. It is very technical at times. But if you, if you do have a copy of Institutes, you do have a copy of Calvin's work on the Christian life. It's, it's in book three, chapters six through ten. Those five chapters correspond to the chapters that are in this book here. Uh, I don't have it in front of me, but you might perhaps have uh, or own a copy of the, of the Battles uh, translation, which was uh, finished in the 1960s, an updated English translation of the Latin text. Uh, that's a two-volume set, and so you, you perhaps have, have that edition. That content is in there as well. And then, again, uh, this is another uh, excellent translation of Calvin's Institutes. Again, this is from the 1541 uh, Institutes, translated from the French. Uh, and, and Calvin's French translations of the Institutes, as opposed to Latin, is, is much more, um, it's a little easier to read because it's put into the vernacular of the people as opposed to the more academic uh, Latin text. And so maybe you're thinking, I, I don't really know if I want to read and again, I guess they're kind of about the same width. Uh, but maybe you don't want to read all of, of this. Maybe that's too hard. Well, this uh, it doesn't look smaller, but it reads easier. And maybe this would be a really good introduction to the Institutes as well. Uh, nonetheless, if you're not so sure, then grab one of these and read um, through uh, that. Uh, so with all that said, and I'll answer any other questions about it. Did you get the date? 1845. So that, that's, that's how old. Um, so you just imagine... 1845 English in this one. It can be a little difficult to read, but you can still um, slog through it. So let me, um, let me end uh, with a brief discussion on, on why we want to study this book. Why, why did I pick this content, this section of the Institutes, as, in, as opposed to any other section of the Institutes? Um, well, it somewhat speaks for itself that this, this chapter was always published independently. It was always recognized as a very important work. And uh, and um, I, I came up with um, really four reasons why it's so important for us. And there, there's more than this, but this will get us started as we go through. Uh, but the first reason uh, is that in this short book, Calvin doesn't say everything there is to say about the doctrine of sanctification, but he does give us a very helpful biblical understanding of sanctification. So what does sanctification look like? In what sense is sanctification definite? And in what sense is sanctification progressive throughout our lives? Can we, can we expect uh, perfection in this life? And if not, then, then how can we keep from despair and from struggling and, and uh, as we continue to fight against habitual sins that, that plague us, that, that bring us down? It's in this short book that Calvin gives answers to these important questions with, with very concerned, uh, deep pastoral care. And he does so in a way that makes sense of the tension that exists in Scripture, as we talked about uh, briefly earlier. Bert Parsons will say this about the book that, that he translated here. He says, Calvin helps us to give, helps to give to the church a careful, wise, and faithful doctrine of sanctification that holds together all the beautiful biblical tensions that exist, all the beautiful doctrinal complexities that exist in the Christian life. They help hold uh, the, those things together so that we are not so easily swayed from one thing uh, to another. And, and in, in agreement to that, uh, Calhoun, uh, in his book, says that, that Calvin is quite willing to allow seemingly competing biblical truths to stand side by side without forcing them into an artificial uh, harmony, like I, like I read earlier. So in other words, how are we to understand Scripture when it says that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but then right after that it says, but it is God who both wills and works in us. How are we supposed to make sense of the Christian life? What does it look like? 
Calvin helps us wrestle with these tensions. And part of that then, part of, of uh, this, this sanctification that Calvin will talk about is what it means to bear our cross. Calvin's going to talk about sanctification throughout this book. Part of that looks like bearing our own cross. It looks like self-denial. It looks like zeal for personal holiness. Jesus tells his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So that for Calvin, that's the, that's the central uh, theme of our calling, to be followers of Christ. Uh, as Calvin will write, why would we exempt ourselves from the same situation to which Christ, our head, was subjected? Why would we expect anything different than what Christ went through? And then he goes on, particularly since he, Christ, was subjected to suffering for our sake. And so our, our lives will be marked by suffering. That's Calvin's main claim. Our lives will be marked by suffering. And yet, in the calculus of God, this is actually for our good, since these marks of that the, these sufferings are marks of our union in Christ. And then uh, these sufferings, uh, quote, not only become blessings to us, but they also serve to promote our salvation. And so he talks about the importance of bearing our cross, the importance of sufferings, and then he also has excellent discussions about how we can make sense of our sufferings. He's not, he's not saying that you will never, ever have grief or ever have sadness or ever have any doubts, but those are part of, part of life. It's not that you have to put up a, a fake smile every Sunday and pretend that everything's good even though you're crumbling apart inside. Calvin says, no, you can express and feel those feelings, and at the same time, here's how you can make sense of those sufferings. Calvin, he was a giant of the Reformation, but he was still uh, only a man. Uh, he struggled with the same things that we all struggle with, and, and even more so. That's why we're gonna, we'll look at more of Calvin's personal life as we go through and, and compare it to his words, because it's so stark, so, uh, it's so uh, Im- impressive, and, and uh, just everything he went through. Uh, his life was plagued with worries and fears and sin and sickness and, and loss, uh, as were the lives of everyone in his congregation. And, and he was a real shepherd to them. He was a pastor. He was not an ivory tower uh, theologian, a cold and aloof person, but he he knew the struggles of his people. He knew his own struggles, and he wrote to help others. He wrote to help himself. He wrote so that uh, everyone would grow in their affections toward Christ and their love for him and their dependence upon him. What is quite remarkable, and we'll look at this more in depth as we get into the the chapters as well next week, uh, but Calvin wrote this this chapter on the Christian life in uh, 1539. He would die 25 years later, so he was already on the back half of his life at this point. Uh, and during those 25 years, he experienced immense suffering and loss. He would watch his only son die only a few days after his birth. He would then have to bury his own wife, who died from poor health. And overcome with grief at their loss, Calvin would continue to do his work, even though he would suffer greatly from poor health himself. He had a severe gout, which made walking very difficult. He had ulcers, uh, which uh, made his life uh, daily struggle and, and daily pain. Uh, he had uh, several uh, kidney stones uh, that were very severe and very painful. Uh, he had hemorrhoids, he had malaria, and he had pulmonary tuberculosis, uh, some believe, which uh, to be the cause of, of his death uh, in 1564. But through it all, he never changed a word of what he wrote. And he never cursed God. He loved his Savior. He trusted in him no matter the circumstances. Uh, He truly practiced what he preached. Let me read uh, just uh, one portion uh, from this, uh, from, uh, from Calvin here. If then we want to be disciples of Christ, we should make it our aim to soak our minds in the sort of sensitivity and obedience to God that can tame and subdue every natural impulse contrary to his command. So it will be that no matter what kind of cross is placed upon us, we will steadily maintain endurance even though the narrowest straits, even through the narrowest straits of the soul. Indeed, adverse circumstances will keep their bitterness, and we will feel their bite. We're not pretending that pain doesn't exist. When afflicted by illness, we will groan and toss and long for health. When pursued by poverty, We will feel the stings of sadness and anxiety. We will bear the weight of sorrow at dishonor, contempt, and injustice. When loved ones die, we will naturally weep. But this will always be our conclusion. Nevertheless, the Lord has willed it. 
Therefore, let us follow his will. Indeed, this thought must intervene in the midst of sorrow's very stings, in the midst of our groans and tears, in order to incline our hearts to endure those things with which they're afflicted. This is a man who truly believed what he wrote, believed what, what he preached, believed what he taught, who was resting on Christ alone throughout his life. And along with that, why can we uh, rest in that truth? Uh, we'll close with this. How can we have any comfort when we go through trials like that in life and those sufferings? Is, is because we have the assurance of faith and of salvation. That's one final reason why we want to study this, this short book, is because it helps us with our own struggles and assurance. How can we wrestle with a guilty conscience? Well, we, we can read Calvin, who himself wrestled with a guilty conscience and, and uh, a lack of insurance, and he wrestled with that until the beautiful Reformation doctrines of salvation by faith alone became great in his own eyes. And when that conversion happened, he, he saw that true assurance comes from a proper understanding of justification by faith alone. And in order to have a proper understanding of justification, we first need to have a proper understanding of God's holiness and his perfect justice against all unrighteousness. And in order to have a proper understanding of God's nature and all his different attributes of justice and righteousness and holiness, you need a proper understanding of God's word, which is his revelation to us. And so thus, we have the great rallying cries of the Reformation of Scripture alone, and Christ alone, and faith alone, and grace alone, and to the glory of God alone. Those, those, uh, those slogans of the Reformation, they became a balm to Calvin's anxious soul. Uh, his, anxious soul. Uh, his standing before God was secure now, no matter what his sovereign God would throw at him in his life. And not only that, but the promise was also secure that this God was his loving Father. And he would only ever work in Calvin's life for his ultimate good. So in short, Calvin then asks us, how then ought we live? And he seeks to answer that question, to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, because he understood all that his heavenly Father had done for him in Christ. And so this little book then, in this book, Calvin provides a call for all Christians to pursue holiness and to endure suffering and to rest in Christ alone, who has suffered on their behalf, who is their righteousness, and who has secured their future in his resurrection. So that's why we're going to study uh, this book. I cannot wait to jump into it. Uh, We're going to pick up with the first part of it next week. So I have, um, so this is, let me explain this just very briefly. So no matter what edition of the Institutes you have, this is what you'll be reading. If you have the beverage, any uh, beverage translation, those are the pages right there. Uh, if you have the battles translation, the two volumes, you will go to volume one and those pages. Again, it's book three, chapter six, sections one through five. Uh, we're going to go through book three, chapter six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. Next week, we'll just do book three, chapter six, which again corresponds to the first chapter of this uh, little book. So uh, I hope uh, that's, uh, or to make it more confusing, you've got this one, it's chapter 17. So I hope that I made it as confusing as possible for you all. Thank you for your attention. I'll end there. Uh, Please come up and grab a copy. If you have any questions, I'd love to uh, answer those as well. Thank you so much.